The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This morning I'd like to um, continue a series of talks that I've been giving, that is, I'm giving them once a month. And uh, they're on the topic of the ten perfections, the ten paramis. And um, the um, last month, I think, was more like the introduction to it. No, it was, it was I talked about generosity, the introduction to it. And then uh, this month we're doing uh, virtue, the perfection of virtue. And uh, as an introduction to this topic of the perfections, there, there are qualities or of character, characters or inner virtues that uh, get cultivated in doing Buddhist practice and then in turn support further practice. So there's a wonderful reciprocal relationship that goes on. <clears throat> and, it, um, and in many ways, um, in most ways, one of the things we cannot rely on when we do Buddhist practice is uh, our monkey mind. And the monkey mind is the mind that is jumping around all over, can't settle at all in anything, always wanting something to be different, wanting, wanting, pushing, pushing away. Uh, sometimes the monkey mind is always analyzing, trying to think, think its way out of its quandaries. And um, there's a certain kind of activity of the mind which is just a dead end. It's worse than a dead end. It's kind of like you dig your own grave. <clears throat> like if you're uh, constantly trying to, um, you know, like if you're standing, if you're in a city, a new city, and you're trying to find your way and you're lost, um, and you just sit down on the curb and start um, uh, thinking about all the possible ways you might possibly find your way out. Probably, pretty soon it's going to get dark on you. And then, uh, then it's going to be really hard to find your way out. <clears throat> so the same thing with a spiritual life. If you try to fi- think your way too much about it, uh, with a monkey mind that's going around, that uh, you, pretty soon it's going to get dark for you. And you won't find your way out. And some people rely too much on that monkey mind to try to understand and figure out, rely on their mind that's anxious, rely on the mind that's desirous or despairing or something. Uh, luckily, there are other things we can rely on besides our own monkey mind or our own kind of uh, self-centered preoccupations or concerns or approaches. And, um, and one of them is a whole series of things. So for something very simple, for example, you can rely on your posture. And some people who've done a lot of meditation can, can know this, that if you have all kinds of things can be going on for you, you can be, um, you know, your mind can be a little bit crazy, anxious, overactive, You're, you can have strong emotions and feelings going on, and it can seem very difficult. And if you sit down and hold an upright posture for half an hour, an hour, something changes. Somehow the posture is a container that holds all the different challenges that go on inside of us, and things kind of have a chance to settle down. Um, it's mostly a matter of getting out of the way rather than perpetuating our monkey mind, our preoccupations. So if we can kind of step out of the preoccupations of the mind, just sit there, something happens, something changes, and it's not unusual for people to feel a transformation as things fall away. So something as simple as a posture. And that's true in daily life as well. If you, sometimes if you hold your posture upright, it's much more difficult to succumb to some of the strong emotions and feelings that can take over. Uh, sometimes if we, like if you feel depressed, um, if you just kind of collapse your posture and become the ultimate couch potato, 
uh, the chances are that that, uh, that postures will strengthen and reinforce the ideations that might be supporting the, the depression. But if you can sit upright and straight and keep an alert, dignified posture, uh, you, uh, that's gonna, that kind of cuts through some of the, not always, but uh, sometimes some of the depressive um, things going on. So there's a whole series of things that support us which are not exactly direct, not directly our own doings. Uh, or we make, we make them happen, but then they support us. So, um, and in this line, I, I, I love that line from the movie, um, Field of Dreams, where they say, build it and he will come. For Buddhists, it's build it and it will come. The Dharma will come. We build something with our practice. We build something with our body. It's, uh, we put our body on the cushion. We engage ourselves physically in the practice. We, uh, we, create, um, uh, we create a field of virtue, of ethics around us. Uh, so we live ethically. We develop our loving kindness. We develop our generosity. We develop a variety of different things. We build a heart. We build a, 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 a character of who we are, change our character, and then, when doing that, something is allowed to come. Something comes to support us. The uh, Buddhists call it the Dharma, but you don't have to call it that if you don't like that. But, but um, there's a lot of things that come. So today, the topic is the perfection of virtue, or the perfection of ethics. There are ten of these perfections. There are uh, qualities of character that are developed in practice, and as I said, they then support us. They're like that we're building, we're building something beautiful. Build it, and then something can happen. And um, uh, these ten, for those people who haven't been part of this so far, are um, generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, patience, uh, truthfulness, resolve, um, loving kindness, and equanimity. And um, so, uh, today's topic is virtue or ethics. When I teach, um, when I've taught precepts, the five precepts to children here at IMC, I have uh, made the point to them that um, when they were just babies, little kids, they could do nothing for themselves. And everything they needed was provided by their parents. You know, the parents protected them, took care of them. And... um, and then as they grew up, at some point they could uh, walk by themselves, at some point they could feed themselves, at some point they could go to the bathroom themselves, at some point they could walk to school themselves perhaps, at some point they could take the bus by themselves, they can go out into the world. And so as people grow up, you become more self-reliant. You, you, you don't know, at some point you no longer rely on your parents to protect you, to take care of you. But it, even as you get older, it's good to have some protection. And so in Buddhism, I tell the kids, we have five protections that uh, will protect you. Uh, we have the, uh, the protection of not killing or not harming. If you don't cause harm, you create protection for yourself. Uh, if you don't steal, you create a field of protection for yourself. If you don't lo- uh, engage in sexual misconduct, it's uh, protective for you to do that. And if you don't lie, it's protective for you. And if you don't engage in, to- in intoxicants, that's a protection for you. And so I offer that to the children because I don't want to, I'd rather give them, have them that sense that the precepts, as important as they are, are not, not moral commandments, but rather they have these benefits. Um, 
they're, uh, they're not moralistic or puritanical, like thou shalt not do these things. But look, here are some. It, it, if you really want to take care of yourself and protect yourself and benefit yourself, these are simple ways of doing that. Um, for grown-ups, uh, I don't usually say they're protections, um, but they're, uh, f- uh, they're ways of building something beautiful so something can come. Uh, the idea of creating, um, uh, 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 having quality of virtue within us, not just by how we act, but uh, the, uh, the character of our heart, is one of the most beautiful things a, cre- a person can create. To have a certain purity of heart, or simplicity of heart, or, or to have a heart which is, um, or an inner life, which is not being motivated by uh, forces of hate, forces of ambition, or greed, or selfishness, forces of contraction, of attachment, of clinging, forces of great resistance and uh, you know, fear. To have a heart that's freed of these things is, is a beautiful feeling. It's one of the most beautiful things to have. Um, and on top of that, uh, um, and so, so to discover that capacity, to discover this kind of inner beauty that's possible for all our hearts is part of the task of Buddhist practice. I can remember when I was on um, uh, one of my early Vipassana retreats, the surprise that I, w- I had to discover uh, on retreat this level of inner, inner purity that, that had to do with ethics, with virtue, where I just didn't see, I could feel in this kind of sense of peace, calm that I had, that uh, I just couldn't muster up the motivation to do some of the things that were not exactly unethical, but uh, maybe unethical. Uh, you know, there were certain ways of thinking about people, maybe treating people. Uh, that uh, were not so kind or so sensitive to them or respectful to them. And I could, I, it was such a big shift to feel it coming from inside um, rather than thinking that these were, uh, uh, you know, these were commandments that thou shalt be respectful to others. You're supposed to do that. It's just like, you know, it was a violation to this beauty inside to be disrespectful to someone else. So... Um, uh, so, so in Buddhism, we put a tremendous emphasis on the value of virtue, uh, value of living virtuously, because of what it, uh, what it comes out of. It comes out of this beauty that we have, and it supports that beauty, it supports that freedom in ourselves. So I wanted to read um, a passage, a Buddhist passage, that uh, has to do with the perfections, and it specifically has to do with virtue. Um, Even the waters of the Ganges cannot wash away the stain of hatred, yet the water of virtue is able to do so. Even sandalwood cannot cool the fever of lust, yet virtue is able to remove it. Virtue is unique, is the unique adornment of good people, surpassing adornments cherished by ordinary folk, such as necklaces and earrings. Virtue should be reflected upon as the basis for rapture and joy, as granting immunity from fear of self-reproach, the reproach of others, punishment, and an evil rebirth. It should be reflected upon as praised by the wise, as the root cause for freedom from remorse, as the basis for safety. Virtue surpasses material wealth because thieves cannot confiscate it because it enables one to achieve supreme sovereignty over one's own mind, virtue surpasses the sovereignty of warriors 
and kings. Virtue surpasses the achievement of beauty for it makes one beautiful even to one's enemies. It cannot be vanquished by the adversaries of aging and sickness. Since it is the foundation for states of happiness, virtue surpasses such dwellings as palaces and mansions. In accomplishing the difficult task of self-protection, virtue is superior to troops of elephants, horses, chariots, and infantry, as well as such devices as magic mantras, spells, and blessings, for it depends on oneself, not on others. Thus, esteeming virtue as the foundation of all achievements, as the soil for the origination of all the Buddha qualities, the beginning, footing, head, and chief of all qualities issuing in Buddhahood, one should guard diligently and thoroughly perfect virtue as a hen guards its eggs. I kind of love that last image. You sit on your virtue as a hen guards its eggs. Stay close by, keep it warm, keep it safe. Keep your sense of um, integrity warm. Um, So there are a number of ways that people um, uh, safeguard their own virtue or ethic or integrity. One is from a sense of fear. Uh, they're afraid that if they transgress the precepts or do something, that somehow it'll come back and, <coughs> and, and harm them. Uh, <coughs> you find uh, some people uh, who live very unethical lives, killing and stealing and raping and things, and those kinds of situations, sometimes Buddhist teachers and other teachers, the real teachers, have used very strong statements uh, to really kind of frighten them back into um, being more ethical. And so you find in Buddhism teachings of, um, uh, you know, dramatic teachings of um, fire and brimstone kind of sermons. You don't get that much from IMC. <laughs> Maybe because you're pretty ethical. But, um, you, know, uh, you know, sometimes you have dramatic descriptions of the hells you're going to go to if you do these kinds of things. And um, so, so there are Buddhist hells. The only thing that's good about Buddhist hells compared to other hells is, is the Buddhist, one, Buddhist ones are temporary. <laughs> you know, temporary, you know, it's only going to be for, you're only going to be there for a few hundred million years. <laughs> Eventually you'll get out. So uh, I don't really believe in that, that cosmology, but um, you find that kind of teaching to kind of frighten people to behave. And sometimes that's the only thing that gets people's attention. Um, sometimes uh, there's teachings of um, you protect your, your, um, yourself from remorse, regret. Uh, and that's a, that's a beautiful thing because to walk around um, uh, with all this kind of self-reproach, anger, or fear, fear that someone's going to catch you, is a, is a um, not a good feeling. Um, to be able to go walk through the world blameless, knowing that no one can blame you for anything, is a beautiful way to walk through the world in a dignified way. So to be very careful with how we behave and what we do, and, and uh, so that no one uh, uh, would ever be upset or angry or discouraged by knowing what you've done, is a beautiful thing. Um, when I was in Burma, 
uh, my teacher Upandita was very fond of telling us um, stories of people who had uh, lived uh, unvirtuous lives, dramatically so, um, and, um, and then they'd come to the monastery to meditate, do intensive retreats. And inevitably the story went something like this, that um, they would start sitting and meditating and they'd make some progress in their meditation, get a certain level of calm, and then they would uh, not make any further progress. And they would really try hard and really try hard. And usually there was kind of like a breaking moment where, where something very dramatic would happen where they'd had to confront uh, the legacy of their unethical behavior. Uh, they had dramatic uh, memories of what they had done or something inside of them, some dramatic pain inside of them was associated with what they had done. But somehow or other, they had these dramatic uh, encounters of having to somehow... And it was all, they were always very difficult, always very painful, because, you know... And then, um, in the way these stories were told to us, they would break through to the other side. Once they'd kind of really owned up and seen through and worked through uh, what they had done in the past, then they would, some, the meditation would be able to uh, continue after that point. So um, some, of peop- some people get away with being mildly unethical. Maybe they cheat on their taxes. Is that mildly? I don't know if that's mild. But, um, or they, you know, they, um, I don't know, there are all kinds of ways people take what's not given. And um, I remember being, right now I remember people who, over on the 280, the freeway over here, if you, um, the exit for El Monte, um, if, you, if, if the traffic is really backed up on the freeway, you can get off on the exit and stay straight, and then it takes you onto the entrance again, and so you can bypass all those cars standing still. You know, those, you know, that kind of freeway, you know, thing. And um, that's kind of mild, isn't it? Unethical thing. But I think that's, I think, I think that's kind of unethical. It's kind of taking what's not given. It's kind of forcing yourself into other people. So there's a whole range of things, you know, range of things. And, um, and uh, will it come back and bite you? Do you, you know, that's, that's the teaching of karma. Is it gets stored up someplace inside and uh, it affects you in some way. And, um, and so some people want to protect their meditation. So, so, so what I was going to say was in ordinary life, um, that level of mild ethical transgressions uh, uh, it's not really going to affect you too much. Or you're not going to notice the effect. And you just can continue living your life, speeding around, doing, getting what you want, doing everything. And you might not think there's a problem at all. Um, yeah, oh, it was yesterday. It was downtown. Was it yesterday? Saturday, maybe. Yesterday. Downtown Redwood City. And there was a lot of traffic. And, um, and uh, I was... I was driving along the street and stop, stop and go, stop and go. And, uh, and somehow I hadn't noticed that the person who was parked next to me was trying to get out. So I just continued to walk. I drive down. And um, the person, uh, uh, his window was down, yelled a swear word at me. It was quite something. And uh, I just felt sorry for her. I mean, I felt sorry. I would have liked to let her, for, for let her through if I'd known, if I'd noticed. But I thought my crime... What didn't warrant the punishment, <laughs> and uh, because of the ferocity of this woman's anger, <clears throat> but I mostly felt sorry for her. Uh, what kind of karma is that for her? What kind of pain and suffering is she carrying with her? 
So if someone who does meditation practice, especially you know, serious meditation practice, sooner or later has to encounter your karma, has to encounter how you behave and what goes on in your life. And it's a profound and, and it's a very important thing to encounter your unethical behavior. Uh, don't recoil from that. Welcome it. And work through it to the other side. It's a great thing to do. Um, but it wouldn't be great if you didn't have to encounter that at all. <laughs> And you can sit down to meditate and you didn't have to deal with, you know, your remorse and your regret and the stored up tension that uh, these things have. Because you don't know when it'll come back. You don't know when. I've been surprised. I've been on retreat and um, merely doing my practice. And then, boom. Uh-oh. That thing I did a long time ago. I guess I have to go back and deal with it now. I couldn't just, you know, it wasn't just a matter of working through it the minute on the cushion. I had to actually go in the world and, and uh, somehow clean up my mess. Um, so I love it. it. It's really great. I think the Dharma is a wonderful protection because the Dharma makes us, um, forces us, I think, sooner or later to be really honest about this inner, the quality or the integrity of our hearts. And, um, and then when we start really appreciating that integrity, then the Dharma supports us in how to uh, maintain it and continue it and support it and let it grow and develop further and further. There's a discourse um, in the long discourses of the Buddha of a conversation between a Brahmin, that kind of priest caste in ancient India, and the Buddha. And the Buddha asks the Brahmin, uh, what are the five true qualities of a Brahmin? And the Brahmin uh, res- uh, then lists five. He says, um, 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 a Brahmin is well born on both the mother and father's side of pure descent for seven generations. So this is where you're, you have to be born into a Brahmin family to be a Brahmin. <clears throat> Um, he is a scholar well-versed in the mantras and the scriptures of the ancient of the Vedic tradition. Um, he is a handsome and pleasing. <laughs> <laughs> it says. <clears throat> um, he is virtuous and he is wise. Then the Buddha says to him, is it possible to omit one of these five qualities and the person would still be a Brahmin? And so the Brahmin who's answering says, oh yes, it is possible. Um, You can leave out the appearance thing, you know, being handsome. Because what does that matter? If a Brahmin had the other four qualities, he he could be recognized as a true Brahmin. And the Buddha said, but could not one of those four qualities be omitted? And uh, so then the uh, Brahmin says, oh yeah, it's possible to leave out one of those four. We could leave out the mantras. Well, what does that matter? If he had the other three qualities, he could be recognized as a true Brahmin. But the Buddha continued, could not one of those three qualities be omitted? <coughs> oh, it is 
Buddha, we could leave out birth. For what does that matter? If a Brahmin is virtuous of increasing virtue, and if he is wise, then he can be recognized as a true Brahmin. Um, and then the uh, other Brahmins who were listening to this conversation got upset. <laughs> Don't say that. Don't say that. Um, so then the Brahmin uh, defends himself, uh, why, he's, why he has this view, and he ends with this. Um, he says, all these other things, those first three can be dropped. But... If one were to admit one of the last two points, that is, being virtuous and wise, uh, uh, could one truthfully declare, I am a Brahmin? No. This is the part I want to read to you. For wisdom is purified by virtue, and virtue is purified by wisdom. Where one is, the other is. The moral person has wisdom, and the wise person has morality. And the combination of morality and wisdom is called the highest thing in the world. Just as one hand washes the other, or one foot the other, so wisdom is purified by morality, and the combination is called the highest thing in the world. I, I love that image of um, you know, washing, wa- washing your hands. You know, most people have, people have two hands, they, you know, you, you need both hands to wash them really well or easily. And so, um, so in the same way, your virtue and your wisdom go hand in hand. They support each other, work together. And there's a very important reason for this. Uh, wisdom in Buddhism, the, one of the, co- the core essential aspect of wisdom in Buddhism is more like discernment. It's more the ability to discern or to discriminate, to see clearly what it is that causes suffering and what it is that brings happiness. What is it that causes harm, and what it is that brings benefit. To be able to make that distinction uh, is the core distinction that all of Buddhism comes out of. Uh, you don't have to have you know, some great wisdom about metaphysical things, or the true nature of reality, or the true nature of the mind. You have to be able to see this very simple um, distinction between what, where, where the, uh, what causes tension, conflict, stress, suffering, and what causes peace, what causes freedom, what causes, uh, brings benefit for you, brings happiness. If you can see those two, then when you encounter your behavior in the world, you can begin uh, seeing how being virtuous is beneficial. You can see that uh, how virtue, how, you know, killing or harming someone um, that causes harm to, to others and probably to yourself as well. Lying does the same. All, all these kind of things causes harm. And you can see that other behavior brings benefit and happiness. And the other part, this, this positive part, is a very important part of Buddhist spirituality. Buddhist spirituality is not, not about... The emphasis should not be from people who are developed in the practice on the ethics of restraint. Avoid killing and stealing and lying and sexual misconduct and intoxication. It's kind of assumed that you're not going to do those things. It's really important not to do them. But if, uh, but if that was all that Buddhist ethics was about, 
uh, I think we'd all become, you know, uptight or, <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be so much fun. But uh, the, uh, uh, the other part, the part of the reason to love virtue in Buddhism, virtue is meant to be something you care about and love, is because it also entails developing these beautiful qualities of heart as well, these beautiful qualities of character. Um, and, um, and so it's not just a matter of avoiding certain behavior, it's also a matter of cultivating other behavior. So instead of uh, avoiding killing, we cultivate compassion. Instead of avoiding stealing, well, not instead of, but, you know, I said it the wrong way, didn't I? Uh, yeah, instead of uh, killing, we develop compassion. Instead of stealing, we develop generosity. Instead of engaging in sexual misconduct, we cultivate um, uh, respectful love. Instead of engaging in lying, we cultivate our capacity for truth. Instead of engaging in, se- in intoxication, we cultivate the mind's clarity. And so we're kind of also cultivating these positive things as well. And the ten paramis, these ten perfections, are part of the class of these uh, ethical class in Buddhism of qualities that can be developed and strengthened. Some people um, will spend a lot of time cultivating these. Uh, some people find that some of the, the, the qualities of virtue are best cultivated uh, in daily life. And uh, uh, in, in encounters with people, at work, and places like that, that's the place where you cultivate generosity. That's the place you cultivate um, um, uh, your compassion, your respect for others, and all that. You don't, uh, in meditation practice, maybe you don't cultivate those directly there, but there you cultivate the, uh, the mind's ability to be uh, still and peaceful and calm and settled so that you have a reference point for understanding better what, is, what causes harm and what brings you benefit. If the mind, if the heart is really calm and stable, still, peaceful, you'll have a very different uh, relationship to yelling someone out your window. You know, you, you just feel, that, that, feels, you know, that feels really you know, awful to, to yourself to, to swear at them in the traffic. If you're really agitated and upset and you know, all kinds of things, stressed out, it's, you, you know, it's really easy to yell at someone. But it's hard to do it if you're settled. It's hard to... Uh, uh, so, uh, it isn't, uh, so to be settled and peaceful gives you a reference point for the wisdom side to operate. And it's said that a lot of the virtues in Buddhism get cultivated and developed naturally or automatically through a strong meditation practice. You will naturally become more uh, ethical, naturally more generous, naturally more uh, patient, naturally more able to let go, naturally more, um, you know, all these different beautiful qualities. Uh, as the mind settles down, if the, as the mind gets less caught up and tied up in itself and preoccupied, and, and the mind, mind and heart becomes more free. One of the things I like about the, uh, the story about the Brahmin 
And you find this kind of, kind of teaching, in different examples given over and over again by the Buddha, that um, who you are because of how you were born is not, that, it's not really that important for the Buddhist life, for the spiritual life. That what's important in how a person is measured or how, what, is by their virtue and by their wisdom, by their, how they are, not what they are. And so no matter who we encounter, we may encounter many, many people who are very different from our, ourselves. It's not, uh, it's not what they are that's important, but how we are in relationship to them and how they are to us. And how we are is defined by, by do we treat people uh, in, uh, in ethical ways or treat people with integrity. So Buddhism, I think, uh, champions infant respect, lots of respect for our fellow human beings, no matter what their circumstances uh, that they're in, that um, we try to meet them with our wisdom, our support, and our virtue. And not only do we protect ourselves that way, um, but uh, we protect the world when we're virtuous, when we're ethical, and we live a life of integrity. It's uh, the Buddha called... um, our ethics, our gift to the world. It's a beautiful thing. So if there's uh, one thing I'd like you to remember as you leave now from this talk is um, that, the, the, that your capacity for being virtuous, being ethical, having integrity uh, is not something to believe in so much as something to love, something to care about. And your, your care for that, your love of that, is what will um, you help find your way. But if you just believe in it, I don't know if that's good enough. So, um, thank you. And uh, in a half an hour, we'll have, those of you who stay, we'll have Tony Bernhardt here. <laughs>